Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improves your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tessa. And I'm Ken, and I'm excited, Tessa, because this is the final part of an awesome little mini-series of three episodes. Um, We've been chatting with Australian neuroscientist Dr. Mark Williams. What an amazing guy. Uh, He's a scientist, obviously, and he's also an educator, and he shares some really incredible insights with us about the brain and how it functions in decision-making. Yes, and we do definitely recommend that you go back and listen to the previous two episodes if you haven't already, because there's just so much useful information in them. Uh, In this third part, we start a discussion about the aging brain. And my mind really was blown about his comments about how the brain ages. You know, no more excuses that we're just too old to learn something new. He also delved into the importance of socializing, which intuitively I knew was important, but I didn't realize just how important it was for your brain's health. And you have to tune in to hear the story about my Uncle Eddie too. He's quite a remarkable, was a remarkable older gentleman. Incredible. So basically the, the message there is we we should never retire, isn't it, Ken? Yeah, I think I've said that to someone today. I think we've just got to find something meaningful to do, uh, regardless of whether we're working full-time for pay or or not, um, because you know it brings in all those important things that Dr. Mark uh, talks about that we're about to listen to. And he concludes by reflecting on one of the hardest decisions that he's made recently, and it's something that I'm sure many of you have thought about doing too. Yes. Let's have a listen. You'd mentioned earlier that the fact that our prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until 25 plus or minus a couple of years. I think the idea of our brain over time is a really interesting one. That and and you referred a bit to Parkinson's as well. My mum had Parkinson's, so I certainly saw, you know, how that played out for her. Can you talk a bit about um, that and how the aging of our brain impacts our decision making? Yeah, great question. So the really cool thing for you know, us who are getting a bit older is that we now know that our brains actually constantly change uh, in positive and negative ways. So we now know that neuroplasticity occurs throughout our lives. So we used to think based on, well, Piaget's studies and so on, that we had these critical periods that we went through as we were kids and teenagers. And then after that, it was pretty set and we were stuck with what we got. And then it would start atrophying as we got into the older years. What we now know is that's none of that's actually true. It was based on pretty poor research. And there are no critical periods you can actually learn anything you want at any stage and they've now shown that even retirees are able to learn a new language to the level where a native speaker couldn't actually determine whether or not they were a native speaker or not which goes completely against the whole piaget theory of development of language so we now know that it does our brains can stay strong and healthy all through our lives and and doing things that act Activate your brain that actually works your brain keeps it strong and keeps it healthy and doing things that don't doesn't activate your brain actually results in atrophy of those areas so what we need to be doing is is things that yeah keep our brains healthy and keep them healthier for longer so we know that if when you retire if you learn something new like learn a new musical instrument or um, learn a new language or you know go and do a course in an area you've never studied before that can actually decrease your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's by up to 10 to 15 years or other neurodegenerative diseases as well. So just by exercising your brain is a really, really good way 
to make sure that you keep it healthy and you keep it functioning really well. A lot of people think that their brains are atrophying just because they're getting older. But as we get older, we tend to get more sedentary and more stuck in our ways because of that decision making, because we have a huge amount of information in our long-term memory, all that's determining what we do. So we get more narrow in the decisions we make and we make them more quickly. And so we stick to the same routines and everything that are already established in our brains, which means that we're not challenging our brains as much as we should. So you've got to keep challenging your brains. You've got to keep trying new things and, and doing things outside of the box, if you like, doing things that are different. But the best way to actually exercise your brain is to socialize. So because we're social animals, our brains have evolved to socialize and socializing is a really, really complicated thing to do and a really difficult thing to do, which is why we're the, we have biggest brains and we have the biggest brains so that we can actually socialize and so that we can actually connect with each other. And so sitting down with someone and having a chat in real life, because you get a lot more neurotransmitters and stuff released when you're in real life rather than over the internet, but actually sitting down with someone and having a conversation is the best way to exercise your brain and keep it healthy better than anything else you can actually do. Uh, which is, of course, why now in nursing homes and stuff, they take them out and they have people come in and they teach them, you know, they have music going and all these things to actually keep their brains healthy. And most of that's around socialisation because we know that activates more of your brain than anything else. So it's the best thing to actually keep it healthy and happy. Well, that's interesting. I was just going to do a quick shout out. Uh, my uh, dad's uncle Eddie has passed away now, but he was a psychologist who kept practising until he was 100. Wow. He lived in Darwin and, uh, you know, he'd, I can remember at one point where his uh, his daughter who lived with him and sort of looked after him, he lost his eyesight, uh, a real character, you know, had been in active service in World War II as well, but, you know, he'd come out of hospital and found out that his daughter had cancelled all his clients' appointments. He said, what have you done? People need to see me. So he said, you need to get back and contact them. <laughs> and uh, But I think that, you know, as you've spoken, it, 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 I guess there's two elements of that. One is that he's thinking and dealing with complex uh, issues that people are bringing to him, but there would also have been that variety of social contact that he would have maintained as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's the most important thing for you know, psychologists is to make that connection. And we know that's why psychology works well, um, because the psych especially with psychologists who are really good at connecting with their clients, because once they're connected, they then learn from them and they get all those really positive benefits of actually interacting with someone that they trust and they can um, be open and, and honest with. And there's some great research on uh, longevity. And, and social interaction isn't there. I know that people are always trying to find, like, what's a superfood? Like, what diet do I have to eat to live to I'm 120? But often the communities that live really long, you know, it's actually the fact that they're in village lifestyles, they have good neighbour interactions, they're socialising every single day. So, you know, there's no eat your way to, to living to 120, that it's all these other factors that are so important too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, food's good. Food's important, and we don't want to be eating McDonald's every night and eating healthy. Actually, eating a really varied diet is actually been shown to be the best way to stay healthy. So, eating lots and lots of different things rather than the same thing is the best thing. And of course, water is really important. So, you should be drinking a lot of water. Getting enough sleep is really important. But the number one thing, and it's better than any drugs that are actually out there for things like dementia and social anxiety and all those sorts of things. Um, is actually socialising and actually spending time with people you trust. 
which is pretty cool. But of course, we're at an all-time low at the moment, and we have been at an all-time low for the last five or six years because of the internet and because of devices. And so we need to get that back. And it's one of the things that really concerns me. And one of the things, well, you, you're both ex-teachers, is, is you know I, I work with a lot of schools, and I can always tell the schools that um, restrict smartphones from their students versus the ones that don't as soon as I walk onto the campus because the kids are either interacting and actually socialising or they're looking at their phones. And I think it's it's one of the reasons why we have a lot of mental health issues in schools and a lot of behavioural issues in schools is because a lot of yeah, kids are, are on these devices all the time and they don't learn how to actually interact with each other and socialise. Yeah. Yeah, really yeah. good points. Maybe an action item for our listeners. At the end of this podcast, go out and um, text someone or call someone and just set up a date. Go go have dinner, have a coffee, go go reach out to someone. We can all do it so much more. Just back to your point about brain plasticity, I just wanted to to clarify. So you were saying that you st- obviously we still have the capacity to learn even when we're in our 80s or 90s, but is there a deterioration in the plasticity or is it deterioration due to lack of action like can you keep your brain as as i guess uh agile when you're 30 as you are when you're 60 if you are constantly exercising it yeah all the evidence suggests yes you can um the only thing that's going to factor into it is if you have some sort of disease that actually affects it or if there's some sort of physical damage that occurs so if you're in a car accident or something like that 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 then can cause issues that are more long-term and are going to affect the ability of it to be to be um, to continue to be healthy, but if all those things are equal, then uh, yeah, as, as long as your cardiovascular system is working well, so you're supplying the right amount of blood and the right nutrients to your brain, it, it should work until you pass away. Well, I'm I'm actually trying to learn Fijian at the moment, and I've been giving myself the excuse that I'm very old now, so it's why I'm being a bit bit slow. But you've just you've upended that. And my mindset is now changing, Dr. Mark, and I'm going to uh, set my standards a little bit higher. You'll smash it out now. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's so many questions we could probe. I, I will dare to ask you another one, noting now we've gone way past the Pomodoro uh, time, <laughs> and that is around memories. I have recently been listening to a book that I found very interesting on Audible uh, called Remember by Lisa Genova. And uh, she has some interesting uh, insights in terms of how the brain works with memory formation. Um, And in a recent episode of the show, we talked about availability bias, the tendency for humans to draw on readily available memories to inform their judgments. Um, So that if we ask someone, you know, what animal causes the most human deaths in Australia, that people might jump to a a story that they'd recently heard on the news about a shark attack or a crocodile attack, rather than sort of thinking, well, maybe, you know, that's not the best way for for me to try and uh, answer that question. Can you talk uh, to us a little bit about how our brains form and retain memories? I know you've talked a bit about memory centers and and how that's used. Uh, can Can you offer a couple of insights into into that process? And maybe particularly, you know, we 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 just we try and rely on our memories. We don't want to completely dismiss our memories, but we it's helpful, I think, for uh, for listeners to understand maybe just how our memories are formed and some of the limitations of our memory. So we we used to think about memories as 
sort of laying down information about the past so that it was it was so that we could remember the past and we could you know think about the past and so on now we see memories very differently and we see them as actually our memory systems have evolved so that we can act in the future so that we can make decisions and we can do things in the future rather than about the past so the memories we lay, lay down are those that we see as most relevant to us acting in the future rather than stuff just to remember what's actually in the past, which is why it's really hard to rote learn things as opposed to learning things that you um, you understand um, you're going to actually use. Um, it's why if you're going to learn a language, it's best to actually immerse yourself by living in that country and you'll learn a language much, much easier because you're living in that. Not only do you get the experience of hearing the language more often, but also because it's really relevant because you can't eat unless you can actually speak the language or whatever it happens to be. So, um, yeah, we now know that memories are actually there and set there to actually help us um, do things in the future, which also means that they change. They're not. It's not designed so that we can actually remember what happened in the past. So it's not static. It actually changes based on what we're actually doing. So if you um, have a particular memory um, which you use to make a decision and then that decision doesn't work out, you'll actually change the memory so that next time you'll actually do the decision, you make that decision better because the only reason you've got memories is, again, to, 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 to do things in the future. And our memories aren't veridical because we don't have veridical perception. So we don't actually see the world as it actually is. We create a world based on what is important for us. And so, therefore, that also changes things. So I'll give, I'll give you an example. When when I speak to you, you're actually hearing sound in your in your mind, but I'm not producing any sound when I actually speak. So when I speak, I my voice box vibrates the air, and that wave goes through the air um, and then moves uh your eardrum which then moves three little bones which moves another little drum which then moves your cochlea which moves a little hair cell and pushes up against tympanic membrane which activates a chain which then activates an area of your brain based on where in your brain it actually activates your brain then creates an illusion that you heard a sound but there was no sound coming out of my voice yeah my vo my voice box doesn't create a sound it creates a wave mm -hmm. and your brain creates a sound and it's the same with all our perception right color we don't there's no color out there in the world either there's no noise out there in the world and there's no color out there in the world um, and there's no smells out there in the world and so on they're all illusions that are created by our brain based on both the input but also based on what we already know in our memories as to be what's actually out there so we, we i did a, a study many years ago where we were looking at how people perceive facial expressions. I, that was one of my big areas of research to begin with. And I was the first one to show that we actually orient to facial expressions, but and we actually perceive them without actually seeing them. So even if you don't see a facial expression, you'll actually respond to it, your body will respond to it, and you'll get um, amygdala response and physiological response to it, which is why we think that people get... Um, uh, social anxieties and things like that because they're actually processing facial expressions that they're not actually seeing. But that's an aside. Uh, what we wanted to do there was actually look at whether or not actually seeing somebody or knowing, having a memory trace for who they are will change the way you actually perceive their facial expression. 
because at the time there was a politician wandering around that every time he smiled, I had a very negative response to it. Now that goes against the mirror neuron system, right? Because the mirror neuron system says, if I see him smile, then it should activate mine and I should have the same response as him. But I wasn't having that response. I was feeling as though I was feeling quite sick, to be honest. And so we, we had a look at that. And what we did was just taught a whole bunch of, of uh, subjects that these individuals were all really nice people and had little vignettes about them and they had to learn them and learn their names or these people were really nasty and da da da. And so they learnt all those over a couple of weeks and then we tested them both behaviourally, how they were actually perceiving them, and we looked at their brains. And what we showed was that when they thought they were a nice person, then their brain would react to them when they were smiling as though they were smiling and they were happy and when they were angry as though they were angry and they were when they actually thought they were a really nasty person, their brain, when they saw a smiling face, their brain would react as though it was an angry face. So they actually perceive it and their brain and everything would react as though it was an angry face. So what they're actually, what they knew about the person, their memory trace actually changed the way they perceived it. What was really interesting and quite funny was that we then asked the participants, how did you remember who was in the good group and who was in the bad group? And Every participant said, oh, it was really easy because you put all the really attractive people in the good group and you put all the really ugly people in the bad group. Now, we randomised the faces. So every person had a different group of faces in each one. So there was no systematic good and bad. So we actually perceive, and there's a lot of research now showing, that we perceive people, how attractive they are, um, we hear what they say differently. We perceive their facial expressions differently and so on based on our memory trace of them. So we actually even perceive things differently, which means that the memory that you then lay down afterwards will be based on what you believe you perceived, not what you actually perceived. So every time I saw that politician, for example, I would have seen it as him saying something and looking really angry about it. And that's the memory trace I would have for him. No matter how much he smiled, that's what I would remember about him, which would be completely different to somebody else who actually liked that person and therefore would see them as, oh, he smiles a lot and he does, da, da. whereas I would say, oh, he's grumpy all the time and he's quite a, not a nice person, da, 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 yeah? And so we perceive the world very differently and our memory of the world and the experiences we have are based on what we perceive, not based on what's actually happening out there, which means that it's it's a generated memory, not a real memory as we would have think it is, which of course changes all of our decisions, right? Because we're making decisions based on what's in our memory, which is based on the illusions that we perceive around us, based on the memories that we had before, which again is why all of our decisions are based on our prior decisions and our prior experiences that happen in our heads, not actually that happen out there in the real world. Wow. Sorry, I left you on a big note, didn't I? That's just fascinating. And it makes me wonder, though, is there, can we kind of address this, mitigate this a bit by trying to just take in more opinions of other people? I mean, if, if I straw poll a group and say, look, what did you think of this person? And then maybe just try and reflect on whether that, you know, if 90% of the people are you know, their perceptions are different to mine, maybe reflect on what you've just said and say, is there something that's triggering a an, an unhelpful memory uh, in me? 
Yeah, I think that's really important. I think we should first of all just start from the point of view that everyone's actually out there doing the best that they actually can, right? Everyone's actually trying to be the best they can based on their own experiences and what's in their, their memory system. And so we should always come from that point of view to begin with. But then, yeah, sampling a large group of people to work out what is actually the best decision or you know, what this person is actually like or whether or not that's actually true is actually a really good way to do it. And so there's this whole theory that if you ask someone just a random question like um, how many people live in Uganda, then the if you ask one person, they'll be a particular accuracy on that because it's fairly random right and then if you ask another person you actually get closer to the real answer and then if you ask another person you get closer to the real answer and then if you ask another, and you slowly actually get closer and closer to the real answer just by asking random people a question that none of them actually know the answer to he actually thought well hang on why don't if you ask the same person the same question multiple times but ask them for a different answer each time and he did that on just random questions like you know how many people live in uganda or whatever and he found that the first time you're less accurate than if you average two guesses you actually get closer to the real answer and if you average three guesses you get even closer to the real answer so perhaps <laughs> just asking yourself you know a question or you're know, making a decision and then going back and then making the decision again may get you closer to what the real, the, you know, the, the right decision actually is, possibly. Um, it's, it's an interesting study. I mean, it's not a huge effect, but it did actually show that if we if we make multiple decisions, we actually get closer to what the, the real answer actually is. That intuitively makes a lot of sense, I think. And, you know, we talk on this show a lot about pausing and reflecting on your decision. So don't, you know, again, get out of that that fast thinking. Even just taking that moment to stop and sort of dissect your answer will probably make you make a better decision by having that time. So I think it goes goes to that point. People are probably giving that instant answer. And then when they've actually stopped and thought about it a little bit more, they can pull in all of this uh, contextual knowledge that maybe they hadn't thought about. Other things that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Other things that they've got in their brain. Absolutely. Now we've we've taken up so much of your time today and I have about 30 more questions in my mind, but I'm just going to, we're going to tail end um, this and I want to bring us back to decision-making because that is a core part of this podcast. And on a personal level, is there any one decision you really struggled with recently? And if yes, how did you get through it? Oh, great. Well, I recently, well, not recently, yeah, fairly recently, about two and a half years ago, I took voluntary redundancy from the university. So I left a a well-paid guaranteed salary to to go out on my own um, and write books and work with organisations. So, yeah, that was a big decision. That was one that I'd been mulling over for a long, long time. I talked to a lot of people before I made the decision. I think that's important. I think getting feedback from lots of different people, you don't have to take the feedback, but, yeah, talking over with people you trust and people you don't trust. I also talk to people that I, I... yeah, that I might not not have been that close to, but who worked with me at the at the university, so that I could get their view on it as well. But in the end, I did it because of the passion for 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 helping others, and I really wanted to get a lot of this information out there to the real world. So it was it was more of a, a love passion thing, um, to be honest. Yeah. So going back to that emotions versus an objective. I mean, objectively, it probably would have been better for me to stay at the university and just keep getting paid. But 
yeah, the, the emotional side of it really took over and I decided it was time and I needed to get out there. And so it was, yeah, definitely an emotional decision rather than a um, fully, uh, but but I went through a lot of processes before I got to that stage. Yeah. So it sounds like you reflected on your motivations, which a lot of our listeners have talked about in the past, and you realised that maybe finance isn't the most important thing to you and actually having an a reach and impact is more important. So it sounds like you made the correct decision for you. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't I haven't looked back yet. So touch wood. Yeah, which is awesome. Um, so hopefully it'll continue that way. But I think it will. I I love what I'm doing now. Um, and I was getting frustrated with what I was doing back then. And so yeah, I, I think it was a really good way to to do things. And I've now written about to publish a book, and I have multiple other ones. On the, on the horizon and I work with a lot of great organisations, a lot of great people and I get to talk to people on podcasts quite regularly who uh, stimulate my brain and get me thinking, which is great. Well, we've hugely appreciated uh, your time and I'm genuinely very, very interested in your book, uh, having spoken with you this morning. Um, and I believe it's coming out uh, this year. Is that correct? The book is The Connected Species, How Understanding the Evolution of Our Brain Can Change the World. That's correct. Yeah, it comes out in August. You can pre, pre-order pre it now via any of the many bookstores, online bookstores. And yeah, it'll be out in, in August. So yeah, it's. I hope... <laughs> hopefully uh, people get a lot out of it it's got it's got a lot in there for well everybody there's multiple chapters on education and the education system there's uh, multiple chapters on racism and sexism and all those other issues that we've got nationalism that we have and how to actually do that better but it's all based on uh, neuroscience and our evolution um, and how our brains have evolved to where we are now and how we can go forward in a more positive way there's also a lot on 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 technology and how we can use technology better um, rather than the way we're using it at the moment and yeah stop being distracted and stop being busy yeah brilliant well look we'll definitely put a link to that in our show notes but also on our website as well so people will be able to uh, to find that book so the connected species how understanding the evolution of our brain can change the world by dr mark williams Uh, dr mark thank you so much thank you kent it's been absolutely fantastic. And Tessa, too, from Fiji. Um, I wish I was over there. <laughs> and if you, you um, want me to come back on, I'm more than happy to chat more if people have questions. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about to say that, you know, I've still got so many thoughts bubbling on in my mind, and I know our listeners will too. So if you do have questions for Dr. Mark, please feel free to reach out to us and uh as he's just offered, he'll be kind enough to come back and share his insights with us again. Been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I've learned so much in this last last session. Fantastic. Thank you both for having me. Thank you so much. So, Ken, key takeaways. Uh, I mean, it's not really a new thing for you and I, uh, but just never stop learning. You know, it's good to have that reinforced. And it's so comforting to know that old brains aren't less plastic, that any difference is just purely due to inactivity, not aging. So. You know, it's really about um, not making excuses and keeping your brain active. Like we said, don't retire, you know, just keep working because you need to keep your brain engaged and socializing. So I think right now uh, you and I are prescribing all of our listeners to go out and reach out to someone and meet them in person, whether it's friends, family, meetup.com. You know, for some of us, it comes so naturally. 
But there's plenty of us who are just content in our own company. So it might require a bit of deliberate effort and discipline for you to go out and have more in-person interactions. And then finally, for me, you know, again, it's something we do already know that phones aren't good for us, but it's just, it is, it's frightening what it is doing to our brains. And just after we recorded this, I actually came across a study of 27,000 people and it found that the earlier that kids get smartphones, the worse their mental health as adults is. Um, and I'll put a link in our show notes. So it's all, you know, it's a bit bit dark there, but it's it's good to have those messages reiterated, I think. What were your key takeaways, Ken? Well, for me, I'm really fascinated with memory at the moment. So I, I think it's always interesting to learn about how our memories work and the different kinds of memories that, that Dr. Mark referred to. There's a really good book that we mentioned previously uh, called Remember by Lisa Genova. Um, and it's and she's a memory specialist. It's quite fascinating to, to uh, listen to that. That was quite illuminating for me. You know, why do we remember some things but forget other things? But ultimately, though, the lesson that, that Dr. Mark emphasized that memory is actually designed to inform our future decisions. So our memories are critical for, for decision-making. Another thing that I really blew my mind was his research on facial expressions. You know, he said that we perceive a smile or an angry face differently based on our memory and, and how that memory primes us. So we, we're seeing the same thing technically, but but we're not in another way because of our memories. So the key lesson that he says is just give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And we mentioned this a lot in season three, where we talked about different um, biases and heuristics. Our brain has evolved to make really quick judgments, and that's an evolutionary benefit, but it can be a liability as well. We can, And we have a strong desire to stick to those initial judgments, but it's important that we give people uh, the benefit of the doubt. Another interesting one, too, is the, the benefit of asking yourself or someone else the same question multiple times and asking, you know, seeing if you get different answers, the fact that the different answers together when when they're combined can give us a more accurate answer. So you can do that with a decision, you know, you think you're thinking through a difficult decision, then, you know, make a, a call without acting and then come back the next day and, and reconsider and think, well, what would I decide now? And that might, that change of perspective might actually really help you with your decision. So lots of very interesting things, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Please make sure you subscribe to How to Choose and visit us too at goodbetterright.com.au. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. We'd love to meet them too. We know that sharing what we're learning is an awesome way to reinforce those lessons and really make them stick. Check out Dr. Mark's website at drmarkwilliams.com and you can also pre-order his book, The Connected Species. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us for this mini-series. We actually have some more bonus episodes coming your way before we launch Season 4, so keep your eyes and ears open. Bye for now.